Welcome to the Dealmaker Show, the number one place for entrepreneurs and dealmakers to learn about leveraging and generating status, frame control, and narrative power to close big deals. Here is your host, investment banker, deal-making expert, and best-selling author of Pitch Anything and Flip the Script, Mr. Oren Claff. Hey, welcome to the podcast. This is the Dealmaker Show. I'm Oren Claff. I'm the author of Pitch Anything and Flip the Script. If you're not familiar with either of those, get familiar. It is the way the deals are being done, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, Main Street, anywhere where you need to convert a buyer or an investor to your way of thinking, that's Pitch Anything and Flip the Script. So today I have a very interesting guest. I got Peter McCormick, Peter McCormick from the uh, very well-known podcast on Bitcoin. Actually, it's the number one podcast on Bitcoin, What Bitcoin Did. Peter is uh, dialing in. I'll bring him on now from Nashville. So there's one interesting thing about him is, you know, he's from the south of the United States, but he has this uh, British, fake British accent. You know, you'll, but you'll watch during the podcast, it will start to erode and he'll just start talking in a southern twang, his original birthright. Hey, Peter, welcome to the Dealmaker Show. Thank you for having me. How are you? Great, great fake British accent. That's amazing. It's how, do, yeah. how do you do it? Right then, mate. If you'll do I, it, I'll do it. I, uh, I perfected it because British accents work much better here in the US. They do on, on girls, on bankers, everywhere. So, so check it out. We got to talk about Bitcoin at a couple different levels here. I wrote some questions and some of them are technical, but mainly I think, well, this is the dealmaker show. We want to try and understand like guys in real estate. So guys who are running e-commerce companies, women who are um, doing uh, um, running, you know, web e-commerce stores, companies that are just fairly transactional, but they are integrated into commerce through uh, direct payments, through, you know, certainly uh, sending wires back and forth on Bank of America, uh, PayPal and Venmo, the different payment mechanisms, Stripe. And we have, I mean, we have 5,000 companies on our platform that are just transacting day to day. And I think the big thing that I want to get to is when is the jumping in point that's real for a 10, $20 million, $50 million transactional business, either in services or products that does a lot of e-commerce to enter crypto, specifically Bitcoin, because it's confusing if you're a business guy that you don't want to miss the train or you don't want to get in too early and waste a lot of money and invest time, money, people, energy, resources when you could be competing with your competitors. On the other hand, you don't want this bullet train called Bitcoin just to fly by and you forgot to get on it. So that's where I want to get to today, if that's reasonable. Mm -hmm. But I think in order to get there, we got to do some basics like, you know, what the fuck is it? <laughs> it's magic inter it's magic internet money magic internet money i like magic so, internet money but but if i'm an if i'm an economist i'm asking you is it a store of value is it a transfer of value is it an investment device just if we use those three pillars in your mind having the number one podcast and being a thought leader on bitcoin walk us through what it other i mean i think the podcast over. It's magic internet money. Thank you, everybody, for being here. You now know what Bitcoin is. M-I-M. -M. You heard it here. Magic internet money. So, so, but other than that, well, like, what is it technically? Yes, yeah, uh, great question. Uh, there's a lot of ways to answer it. Um, the best way I can put it, it's every one of those things you said. It can be a store of value on the right time frame. Uh, it can be a transfer of wealth and it can be an investment of money. And if we're thinking of your audience, people who may be running businesses, yeah. uh, e-commerce business ten, worth tens of millions of dollars, uh, there's two ways to think about Bitcoin. Should they be holding it on their balance sheet uh, within their treasury? And should they be accepting Bitcoin as a form of payment? Yes. Um, I'm I'm uh, I'm more pro the former, um, and the reason I'm pro the former is because uh, I do it myself. Uh, I don't intend to hold uh, massive amounts of pounds in my balance sheet. Uh, I tend to hold the pounds that I need to run my business over a certain time frame, and depending on where we are in a cycle, I tend to hold uh, either less or more in pounds. But uh, I with all I due respect, you run a podcast, okay. <laughs> 
Like, what do you mean for your business? Which business? Well, the the podcast. I mean, it'll turn over three million dollars this year, so I have okay. to think about All that. All right. All right. So fair enough. Um, so it's a sizable business. Sorry, it was just confusing, you know, because like our customers have, you know, warehouses of, of, you know, glass, auto glass, you know, $30 million on auto glass and they do have a balance sheet, but you're saying how are they, are they profitable? Uh, well, these guys, yeah. Well, so am I. So whether, whether it's a 3 million turnover or 30 million turnover, the explanation I would give is exactly the same. I think some people think, oh, because you've got a podcast, it's, uh, they think of it as a little uh, hobby home business, but I've got a team of six, and uh, yeah, we have a significant turnover. Well, so in terms of that yes. uh, that point is that if you're holding money on your balance sheet, which is long-term uh, cash uh, within your treasury, it may be one of the things you want to consider is that you hold uh, Bitcoin to but, protect the wealth long term. But let's go deeper. And by the way, mm -hmm. as mean as I'm being um, to you about your podcast, my friends... Uh, call me up, you know, who have real businesses and they go, Hey, uh, how much money did you take from little old ladies buying your course today? So that's how they, you know, real estate guys doing a hundred million dollars of real estate a year view my business. So, you know, I have to be mean to you because it's the kick the cat, you know, theory. Be mean to me. It's fine. I can, I can take it. Uh, but, right. but, but yeah, but people don't consider it uh, a business. They think I'm some guy in a room with a, a button that I press on and off and publish and it's not it's actually a, it's a business so I run it like a business um it's, yeah it's an efficient lean machine and uh, I intend to maximize my revenues but also maximize the long-term potential of my revenues so let's let's dig in though as a, as a practical measure and I think it's great to take a podcast as a business because uh it's hyper efficient right supply chain is very efficient you're not waiting for glass to come in from a glass manufacturer storing in the warehouse out back, you know, and having an inventory system and trying to predict order volume in order to maintain uh, inventory volumes in the warehouse and supply chain that could be disrupted by COVID. You're just, you've got a very hyper-efficient business. So that's terrific for trying to understand the use case of Bitcoin. What do you use it for on your balance sheet to help run the business? So this is more about the uh, long-term protection of the money the business makes. Um, yeah. Okay. You know, if we're if we're witnessing, you know, depends on the ranges people give you. You know, CPI figure might be four or five percent inflation. We know if we look at housing and other things, inflation is probably a little bit higher. The money I keep on the balance sheet is not money I intend to spend now. So I'll give you an example. At uh, the start of the year, I took on a advertising contract that was two hundred thousand dollars. I gave them a ten percent discount to pay in Bitcoin, so they paid. And Bitcoin at that time was—I can actually give you the number if you want it. Uh, it gives you a good idea. Yeah. Uh, but um, Bitcoin at the time when I took that uh, one hundred eighty thousand was here we go. Um, give me one second. Twenty. Uh, I'm trying to find where it is. Um, I don't know the actual price, uh, but it's 180,000 Bitcoin, and that's back in January. That Bitcoin now is worth 293,000. So just holding that on the balance sheet, I've increased the size of that contract by uh, 50%. So that's one okay. of the things but, I do. So, so the mind of a skeptic goes then to volatility. How computer mm -hmm. can get ahead of volatility, but Joe Bag of Donuts investor, I mean, somebody gave me a statistic: 90% of the people who come into the Bitcoin trading market, you know, within three months, have reduced their uh, capital base, you know, by 80% and basically have lost money trading, maybe not an actual statistic. I see you wincing at mm. it, you know, but, um, also I'm good at making stuff up. Maybe I made that up, but I think, um, on a, or, or maybe that's a statistical sample of one of uh, me, but anyway, um, <laughs> but, but how come you aren't experiencing the volatility that seems to be there for people entering the market? No, I, but I do experience the volatility. The, the volatility exists. But I, what I say is like at the end of each month, I tend to use, it, it depends on where we're on the cycle. If we're early in the cycle, or if I believe we're early in the cycle, I tend to hold eight weeks cash flow, personal and business in cash. So then I can always run my business and I can always pay my costs, pay my team, et cetera. Um, but anything I need over that is just transferred into Bitcoin. So that's happening on a month by month basis. So I'm buying when the price is high. And when the price is low, but if you look at the long-term chart, the price uh, on the long-term chart has always gone up. It's 
basic supply and demand economics for the value of Bitcoin. So I, I just tend to hold it on my balance sheet. This is money I don't intend to spend and I want to build long-term wealth in my business. So that's fantastic and very helpful. Uh, and I, I just want to continue peeling back, you know, the layers of the garlic here to get to the middle of it. I think about it this way. You have been in very early and so you're basicing up Today, when people think about getting in and they're not hyper-technical, they're not in crypto, and they're just wondering, has it is it priced too high? Can they still get in? Can it still roll? If it is going to roll, why isn't all the people like you um, going in heavier and deeper than you already are? How can a neophyte get in today relatively safely? Yeah, well, I think holding 90 to 95% of personal business cash in Bitcoin is going in deep. You know, I am going in deep. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, but when you talk about the price and it's looking expensive, I don't think I've ever bought Bitcoin and not felt that it looks expensive. Yeah. You know, it, it looked expensive when I bought it at $50,000. It looked expensive at $20,000. When I bought my very first Bitcoin at $80, I thought it was expensive. It always seems expensive. That's just one of the ways it is because you're buying this new thing that you've never heard of. This like decentralized digital money. Um, but I have a fundamental belief in the long-term remonetization of the world with people moving to a Bitcoin standard. Um, we've had a gold standard before. The problem with the gold standard was centralized. It was easy for the government to come off the gold standard. The great thing about Bitcoin standard is it can be individual. You can do it yourself. So I operate my on a personal Bitcoin standard. I have set my trajectory of what I want to achieve in life uh, multi-year. I don't buy any Bitcoin that I don't intend to hold for at least four years, but ideally 10. And therefore, if I believe in the long-term fundamentals of Bitcoin and the thesis of remonetization of the world, there's no I have no interest in holding more dollars and pounds than I want to. So that's why I do it. That's that's the future I'm trying to build for me. And that's the future I'm trying to build for my business. And it's worked out very well for me. You know, it might only be a podcast, but uh, it makes good money. And uh, it's worth a lot more than it would be if I was uh, uh, holding my money in pounds. So so that's great. And just for context, do you have a family? You know, are there are other people like uh, uh, it would be helpful to understand what your risk profile is for decision making uh, based on, you know, what your other commitments are in life. Yeah, I have two children, both in private school, um, very expensive. Uh, I have, a, um, let's say I have a, a taste in nice cars. Uh, I live so, a, so two, a life I two like. kids, but how many wives? You know, that's the number that really matters. One ex-wife. Okay, one ex-wife. One ex-wife. But look, I've got the same yeah. as most people. I've got that standard like family you know, risk profile. I've been divorced. I don't have a pension. Um, uh, my pension is my business and my, my investments. Uh, and... But the thing is, like, what I would be saying to anyone listening to this is that if they're thinking about investing in Bitcoin personal with their business, the first thing they have to do is they have to get behind the thesis of what Bitcoin is. There's a really great article which has now been turned into a book. It's called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. It's written by a guy called Vijay Boyaparty. He compares Bitcoin to the pound, to the dollars, to gold, all the different uh, financial, uh, the monetary instruments out there and explains why Bitcoin is the best. And when you go down that rabbit hole, you understand why it's the best form of money, which is I find hard to debate. The one thing people have to get their head around is the volatility. But the volatility is the price you pay for being part of this uh, remonetization of the world. And volatility over time does reduce, but this is the price you pay. And if you can't buy a Bitcoin and hold it for four years, you probably shouldn't be buying it. Take us through. I'm interested. Yeah, thank you for saying that. I'm very interested in some Peter's experiences. So take me through sort of your lowest low during your Bitcoin, um, you know, investing, uh, you know, process and your highest high. And, and so walk us through those situations and what you felt like in those moments. I'd be very interested to hear that. Yeah. It's a really good question. So I first started investing properly in 2017. Uh, I put 32,000 pounds in, um, and I bought Bitcoin, but I bought all the other cryptocurrencies as well. Yeah. And I was trading loads. Uh, I do really well, got my stack up to a worth in you know, dollar value around $1.5 million, uh, but got super greedy. Didn't understand my market cycles, decided I wanted to get into mining, bought loads of other cryptocurrencies, and that all crashed down. And then at my lowest point, that got me to around 60,000. So it was a pretty big fall from the top. Um, but I use that as a lesson. I use that as a lesson to reconsider what my approach to life is going to be. I stopped trading because trading's really hard. 
I decided all I'm going to do is just stack Bitcoin. I'm going to forget all the other cryptocurrencies and I'm going to focus on my business and grow my business. And therefore, I don't have to think about the value or the price of Bitcoin at any moment because I make enough money in my business to have the life I want. But I am able to build a future for myself by uh, buying Bitcoin as and when I want it. So and then can you just take us in a little bit deeper? Like, uh, so it hit 60,000 and where were you when that happened? Just to take us through that day. You know what? Oh, I mean, the I mean start? It, yeah. it wasn't. It wasn't really a day. I mean, it was yeah. a period of time. Uh, so, uh, 2017, we had this massive bull run. It was all really exciting. You know, I've bought myself a watch and flying first class, and thought I was a fucking genius, but obviously I wasn't. Uh, and then uh, the market crashed in January, and I just thought it would come back, and it never did. And then I had all this mining equipment, and you know, by the time I got out of mining and the, the market had bottomed out, the, the value of my cryptocurrency was, like I said, about sixty thousand dollars. And that was a real moment of like, huh, okay. And so do you, I'm just very interested. So do you have friends you do this and you call them up and you, you commiserated, uh, you, how did it go through that when you were in that period of time? Like, how did you, how did you get yourself out of, I'm very interested in these lows. You know, I love the highs. There wasn't so much of a low though, honestly. Like it was like, oh crap, that happened. But like I've, I've, um, yeah, I've made a loss to, uh, a couple of million, a couple of times. So you get get used to it. I don't. I'm not hugely. I don't hugely worry about money. I I enjoy more the journey of building businesses. Yeah, you know, I've built I've built two business now, and uh, that uh, plus a uh, million turnover. I'm never going to build a hundred million dollar company, but I always enjoy being like behind and having the chase. So when I you know when it went down to sixty thousand, there, there was this moment where I was like, oh, crap, uh, I, I don't have an income. Most of my uh, um, yeah, my podcast is just fairly started, um, and I've you know I've got mortgage to pay and kids to pay for. I was like, okay, I just need to rethink this. And you know, I realized what happened was was by being a trader, I was you know I was chasing and I was being greedy and thinking, oh, I can trade this to X million dollars. So I just decided to stop that. You know, trading's hard. I decided I was just going to go and build a business, which I've done with the podcast, and I just dedicated myself to that. There was so never is, there was I, never I, really I, a huge low. Yeah, it's very interesting. I just sorry to interrupt you, but it's a lot like Hollywood, right? Movies is like trading. Like people love it's so exciting writing movies, getting scripts, getting you know, but it's 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 not a business. Right? There's something like 2400 movies, you know, put out a year, 20 of them get watched. You you can make money in it like trading, but it's not a business like trading. Television is a business. You can get a scripted show. You're filming every week. You're working hard at it. It's an actual job. You have to show up and do things. People expect things of you. You have responsibilities, uh, and but you're running a business in television, and you're making modest amount of money, but it is repeatable, consistent, and you're in an industry in which you have a name. So I like this. I like this notion of hey, and, and I believe in this. We're using Bitcoin. Uh, during the process of running our business, and it's part of the business we're running, which is where you know I started and want to get to when we finish. But the business is not trading crypto. Not for me. Not for and, me. The and I, so I think a lot of people believe that you know that's how you do crypto. That's how you do Bitcoin. Is you have a part of you and you you're trading it, and that's your um, that's how you make money with it. But really, what I hear you saying, and I agree with is that you are running and growing your business and the crypto or the Bitcoin strategy is an adjunct to it and is a multiplier of the business in which you're focused on running. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's like, like I said, I've traded and if you, you know, you can think you're a genius trading if you hit the market at the right time, because it flies up and you think, Oh my God, I'm so clever. I've made all this money. And then very quickly you lose it, but you don't sell straight away because you think it might come back and then it sticks further. I, yeah, I gave it a go. I had a bit, a lot of fun in that year, but I realized that wasn't for me. I, I build businesses and I've built them before. I was like, okay, I've got this podcast. Let me see where I can take this and focus on that. And like I say, this year will do some somewhere between two and a half, three million dollars. Next year will do around five million dollars. And what I can do is use the profits from that one to invest in the product to make the podcast better. Now I'm getting into film now, but also I can just invest that in Bitcoin and build long term uh, uh, financial security for myself and my children. So the, the, uh, um, I think we have to talk about cars for just a minute. Cause you mentioned cars and, and so where does your passion from, for cars 
come from and what kind of cars are we talking about? Like where are you owning them? Are you driving them? Are you racing them? You're collecting them? What? No, I just, I just like, just, I'm a, I'm a boy <laughs> and a boy who won't ever grow up. I like fast cars. Uh, you know, I'm sure you do. It's very rare. You, you meet a boy, a man who doesn't like cars. Uh, I love cars. So yeah. Uh, if you ask about the highs, um, yeah, this year I bought myself an Aston Martin, uh, okay, but Aston Martin makes you know seventeen different models up and down. So a one, you know, a one seven Vantage, yeah, yeah. So I yeah. bought a Vantage, uh, and I bought myself a Rangey. Bought yeah. my bought my dad a car. Bought my dad a Jag. He always wanted a Jag, so I bought him one. Bought my son a car. Um, you know, I'm noticing a trend here of fine British motor cars. Well, I bought my son a Mercedes, so he's he's got a German car. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm. I try and stick with British. Yeah. I'm so British. whenever you guys need to go somewhere over a hundred miles. <laughs> Yay. Easy. We, we hey, take the we, trade. Can we use it? The 300 E? Uh, no, I love cars. I, I'm, you know, I probably have 13, 14 cars and wow. 20, 25 motorcycles, but I'm what's older your, than you. And what's uh, your favorite car? Well, so it's tough. It's tough because, um, I built a truck to take my son to school in and because it's, you know, we're involved together. So I built a 1956 Ford F100 on 46-inch troop transport tires. So it's a monster. And I take him to school. And um, it's a very, like, extreme experience in the little bit of time we get to spend together in the morning. But it's just so, uh, you know, he and I, and it just creates this experience. And we go to the coffee shop. So that's my favorite because it involves him. But, uh, you know, I've got a Land, I've got a, a Defender, Land Rover 87 Land Rover Defender that we had restored in England and, and shipped over here. And that's fun because it's just a piece of history. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the Defender is awesome. Uh, you know, I have some cool cars. I have a Performante, the Lamborghini Performante. It's a super what fun kind? car. Uh, yeah. So that's great. You, so you have to pay extra for no color. You know that? You can get the green or the orange, you know, or the bright yellow. You can get those very easily, but mine's matte gray. But yeah. you can go ahead and wait. You can go ahead and wait 90 days and pay $18,000 extra for no color. But I'm not you a drug dealer, so I can't just kind of pull up to meetings in a bright orange Lamborghini and, uh, you know, sort of go incredibly tell people how they should invest in Bitcoin. It has to be, it has to be black or gray has to be black or gray. So I went to the Lamborghini factory. This is awesome. We got to get back to Bitcoin. But uh, so I, vi you know, I visited the factory to pick up the car. And as they're coming off the line, uh, the Performantes and the Huracans, you, and I, I got to be careful not to be uh, uh, insult various cu cultures, but you can literally see what country and what city the car is going to by the color of the car and the color of the seats. So, so a, few, a few gold ones are going to Dubai. So the gold ones are going to Dubai. Like uh, bright orange with yellow seats are going to Singapore. Uh, the the black, the triple black with the triple black interior. Those ones are going to London. Mm -hmm. So so you could just you could just tell which country is uh, is taking receipt of the car by the color scheme. So it's amazing. Uh, the okay, so cars, yeah, Bitcoin. <laughs> so. Walk me through. I'm just interested in the psychology of your high because in every business, every deal maker has lows, but he also has wins. And when, uh, you know, my partner, whenever he wins big, he always tries to like just throw away some money. You know, he goes and buys something. Now he's won so many times. He, he finds charities to give it to that are really interesting and creative. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you got some big wins and you decide to fly first class and get a Rolex or whatever it is. So, um, do you remember like the emotions of that time? And then how did you decide to pull yourself back and go, Hey, that's not me. Uh, or maybe it is you. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, the two biggest highs, one has been more of um, one is a financial, but one has been more a career step. Uh, and there've been two this year by my dad, a car was a high, you know, my yeah. dad made a lot of sacrifices for me as a kid. And he, all he ever wanted was a Jaguar. And, he didn't never he could never do it. He was like a aircraft engineer, and he all his money went into my education. So he just never got to do that. His dream was to have a, a Jaguar. So um, you know, earlier this year he was about to change his car. So I was like, Dad, we're going to get you a, get you a Jag. So we did, and he loves it, and that was awesome. That was such a cool thing to be able to do for him. Um, career high for me was 
was a very surreal moment uh, a couple of months ago where I got to sit down and interview the president of El Salvador. And you got to remember, like, I, you probably don't know this, but like, I used to work in advertising in London and I had a fairly successful business. It was a three million turnover, 45 staff. I got divorced and um, just went into depression and uh, the company collapsed. I ended up with a drug addiction. Um, so the company collapsed. I ended up uh, wow. in, in hospital uh, with the drug addiction. I lost everything, um, like, like literally lost everything, had to start again. Uh, and during that period, I'd start this podcast, but really as a hobby. I didn't start it thinking, oh, it's going to generate millions of dollars in revenue. And it grows and it gets bigger. And I find myself sat in El Salvador interviewing the president of the country, which was a totally surreal experience just to just to be there interviewing a president of a sovereign nation. Um, and I got on the flight on the way home and I was just like, excuse my language, but fuck, <laughs> this is crazy. How, how did this even happen? Uh, and yeah, I mean, I was quite emotional about it, to be honest, because you know what it's like as a man, like a part of your part of your ego and part of what, what you know, makes you who you are is, have you been successful in life? And I know that's not for everyone, but I lost everything. And I just didn't have the energy to start another business. I was never going to start another agency and yeah. I didn't have the energy to have 40, 50 staff ever again and do that. And I, I genuinely didn't know what I was going to do with my life. Um, yeah, I assumed I'd end up just on a modest salary in my hometown, looking after my kids, and yeah, you know, not living, you know, just living a very basic life. And you know, this podcast has just taken me around the world. I've been to you know, forty countries where I've got to interview all the top people in the industry. Yeah, you know, I get people email me every day saying thank you for what you're doing. It's really humbling. Uh, and, but to f then find yourself interviewing a, a president was just a, such a surreal moment. And that that meant more than any of the money. Like I, I, you know, I'm not super wealthy, but like I've got more money than I need. Uh, I, that means a lot more to me. What what I could actually do in terms of the job. I I think this is really interesting, and I know we're supposed to put today. Well, you know, the mandate here and the promise here is decrypting Bitcoin, not the emotions of money. But I think because of the business I'm in, which is money, and transferring people from. Um, owning a business is selling all or part of the business off. And so we see people step into 10 million, 50 million. I have a guy right now who's stepping into north of a hundred million dollars. There's not enough fucking shit for you to buy unless you start looking at boats with a hundred million dollars. Like they peek out, they buy everything that they ever managed and then they go another circle out and buy things that are like a more extreme version of, so you can buy a McLaren Right, which is uh, so, so you know, it's a, you always imagine having a supercar, and all of a sudden you have twenty nine million dollars. You can get whatever supercar you want. So you buy a McLaren seven twenty, which is you know I don't know four hundred eighty thousand dollars. So then you go, okay, well I love cars even more, so I'm going to buy a McLaren Senna. That's one point eight million dollars. Oh well, you still have twenty four million dollars left after you bought like every car you ever dreamed of. And so then you buy a watch. I mean, the most you can get is like a Richard Mill Turbion you know, which might be $1.2 million. And now you have $23 million left, right? There's just, you so you buy, and then you buy two houses, but houses really aren't that expensive. A $5 million house, $7 million house, you finance some of it, you know, maybe put 2 million into each one. So now you got $19 million left and you've bought everything you could ever think of that requires money. And now you have $19 million left. Uh, and that's being invested with the, you know, Rothschilds group or whatever, uh, with, with bang, with, um, uh, go, you know, Goldman Sachs and they're getting you in this market, you know, nine, 10, 11% return. So as you're sitting on that $19 million, it's, it turned into 21 while you were, um, um, you know, sitting at your lake house, listening to Peter McCormick's, uh, podcast, um, what Bitcoin did. And, and so then you're just sitting around with $19 million or $10 million or $50 million with yourself. And the wheel stops turning and there you are. Like you can only run so far away from yourself with the money. And now you're just left with your values, your emotions, your family, your kids. And so, you know, this, this Bitcoin stuff, I think we come back to where, where you started, which is you have to use it to augment what you're doing, not as hopium, dreamium, get me out of whatever situation I'm in with Bitcoin. I mean, listen, let me ask you something, because I've got a very simple uh, view on money. Do you remember when you first realized you're a millionaire? Because being a millionaire is like that thing where you're a kid or younger. You're like, I want to be a millionaire. But because 
it's like a measure of success. Do you remember when it first happened? For me, easy. Yes. Hold on. Hold on. Can are you there? Yeah. Hello, I can't hear you. Why can't I hear you? Check, check. Mic check. One, two. Hold on. Zero, zero, one, niner. This is Foxtrot Zulu. We are on approach on runway seven, three. You are cleared for go weapons hot. Go weapons hot. Target is in sight. Peter, call the ball. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, this is so annoying. I can't. Ah, there you go. My daughter tried okay. to call me and it flipped me onto the phone. Um, so you, do you remember when you first realized like, sure, you were very, a very easy. Remember the moment, the second, the millisecond in time. Cause it was just like, Oh my God, I can relax for two weeks. But did it, did anything really change? No, nothing, nothing changes. Right. So I got this very like simple view of money in that, uh, there's that saying money can't buy you happiness. And I think there's like, uh, an ounce of truth in that, but the truth is being broke sucks. Like, Thinking you can't pay your mortgage sucks. You know, thinking you can't give your kids what you what they need sucks. But actually, what you need, the basics of what you need is you want the ability to be able to pay your pay your mortgage, go on a holiday once or twice a year. Uh, and when you go to the shops, you do your supermarket shopping or you, you know, take your kids to go buy clothes, you can buy what you want without thinking about it. You don't have to budget. That once you've reached that level, you don't have to and you don't have to worry about money. And you don't have to worry about filling up your car. That gets rid of a lot of fear, a lot of worry, a lot of crap in your life. Everything beyond there, it doesn't make that much of a difference, right? So you can earn a million, 10 million, 100 million. And yes, you can buy stuff, but it's not going to make you happy. It might temporarily. I remember when I got my first Porsche ride, I was so happy. And in about two weeks, it just became the car I drove. That kind of like those inner feelings you have or those we, things that, that you we, want, it, it's not going to make you happy. So and, uh, we, we moved to a new office on South Beverly Drive in Beverly Hills. The business was acquiring world-class motorcycles that had racing provenance. The office next door to us was a modeling agency. So for perspective. Beverly Hills buying motorcycles as art, you know, everything was and any motorcycle we bought would go on the cover of Rob Report, uh, you know, and these were quarter million dollar like they had racing provenance to it. Uh, and then we would get cars as well, you know, Ferrari or Bugatti because one would just spill over in the business and the business next door was a modeling agency. Right. And 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 then I lived in the Hollywood Hills as well. Uh, and that was amazing like for 30 days and then it's just yeah. it's just a business you know the models come by and you know they're parking in your spot you know and they're um uh you know they're just your neighbors and the motorcycles are just assets and you're running low on inventory and you deliver a product to a customer and he um you know doesn't want to pay his final bill and it's just a business after a few weeks i couldn't agree with you more yeah and that's the thing it's like and and, and the reason i talk about this is like you have to make sac a lot of sacrifices to be successful in life. Anybody who's gone out there who's made 10, 50, 100 million dollars, they've made a lot of sacrifices. And you might make a load of money, but one of those sacrifices might be you see your kids less. And you might think you can turn around to your kids and you know they're like, Dad, why are you working? It's like, listen, I'm paying the school fees. You know, look at this great life we have. They don't give a shit. They give a shit about having time with you as yeah. your as your dad. They don't care about what car you're driving, any of that stuff. So you know, once I hit that first million, which I lost again, it never really bothered me after that. Because honestly, prior to where I am now, the happiest time in my life, I was I didn't have much money. And the most miserable time is when I was my wealthiest, my marriage had broken up and I was feeling crap. So I kind of know now that money, money does not buy happiness, it gets you away from depressing broke. That's true. Like get that base sorted out. But don't I, I don't want to say to anyone out there to go and sacrifice uh, things that things that you can't get back, like time, like time is is an important asset as anything. You don't get time back once you've given it away to a company and been in an office. You don't ever get that back. You know, you don't get back the time with your kids. <clears throat> My son's seventeen now. Excuse me. <clears throat> He's hanging out with his friends all the time. He's going to go to college next year. It might be that time where I, I it moves to I see him a few times a year. I can't get back the time that I, I lose now. So you know. As much as people want to go and make money and think they should, it doesn't really it doesn't really give you what you think it does. It doesn't it doesn't repair any of the emotional trauma you have. It doesn't 
it doesn't make you any more friends. It doesn't get you that hot chick, and, and then you're suddenly happy. It, it just none of that, and none of that actually happens. And if you earn loads more money than your friends, actually, it kind of sucks because they can't do what you want to do, and you kind of feel embarrassed. So, I think when people start to think about making lots of money, they really need to think about why and what the impact will be. Because I don't know any person who's made a load of money who says that solved all their life problems. Well, I, and I'll tell you this. I mean, again, we see lots of people transitioning into business. So they sell their business and they do something, I mean, literally for two weeks and then they start a new business. Yeah. And this is, you know, proof positive of what you're saying. I have a question for you, getting back to the topic on yeah, here. Yeah. No, that's okay. This is more important than, and I know, you know, what I did with my million dollars is I moved my office to within six miles or six minutes of my house. So, any time of the day that my son breaks free from school or has a free moment, I can just go home and spend it with him or take him to the beach. So that's the best thing in the world that I could ever think of to Amazing. do with, with my money. One word for you. China. <laughs> so, you know, the headlines at the beginning of this week were China says that all Bitcoin transactions are illegal. Unpack that headline for us through the mind of Peter. Well, so over time, China is becoming more and more hostile towards Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, let's, you know, let's be honest. Um, and But it's really unsurprising. You know, China is an authoritarian state that runs a credit score, a social credit score, which rewards you based on behavior, censors information, forces international companies to censor information, uh, controls a lot of Hollywood now in terms of the you know, the, the things you might see in a film, you can very rarely see criticism of China. It controls the, uh, pretty much controls the NBA. You know, it, it is what it is. Why would they ever allow someone to hold a financial asset which they can't control? So bit by bit, they've been banned, they, you know, announcements of banning it over and over again, year after year. But it seems they've got pretty serious with it now. This year, you know, they've banned mining, they've banned holding the Bitcoin, they've banned the companies that uh, transacting Bitcoin, which is great news. Finally, we can forget about China and say, okay, you have separated yourself from the refinancialization of the world. If Bitcoin continues to grow, they're just not part of that. Um, I, It's one of those things that hangs over your head that I'm now glad it's gone. We yeah. don't even have to worry about Bitcoin and China again. We're done. They've chosen to separate themselves from that. It's not surprising though. I mean, look, they're making lots of big decisions at the moment. Um, they tried to call the housing market, where, which we saw the impact with Evergrande. Um, they, uh, they've got power issues at the moment because they're trying to cut down on the emissions. You know, they're making lots of big decisions. It's not surprising that they've banned Bitcoin. It doesn't change my life in any way. I mean, the Bitcoin price dipped, but you know, generally speaking, I just I get on and do what I do. So you go to a party, you're buying some Bitcoin, as we're doing. We have some Bitcoin on the balance sheet. We're talking about it at a party, and of course, the egalitarian social consciousness environmentalist uh, leader of the group brings over a little pack of environmentalists and says, "Bitcoin mining is uh, boiling the ocean, to, uh, boiling the ocean, heating the atmosphere, melting the." polar bears environment and causing global warming to accelerate at a rate in which we can't meet the X percent by X date. And to this, you say what? I say you're misinformed. You don't understand Bitcoin mining. Look, Bitcoin mining is power intensive. It is energy intensive. Uh, it is required to build the security model of which, which protects you Bitcoin. That's a conversation for another day. That'll take a long time. But what I would say is, look, the Bitcoin is transitioning and Bitcoin miners are transitioning to find the best and most clean energy possible. So that you would, you, if you look at it directionally, Bitcoin mining is becoming cleaner. What a lot of Bitcoin miners are looking to do is actually buy up excess power. They're incentivized to find the cheapest power possible so they have better margins. So one of the best places they can buy power is the excess energy that goes to waste from source. So what you'll do is you'll find Bitcoin miners at places like ideally at places like hydro dams or power uh, uh, power generation points because the energy that isn't used is then lost right and if you're going to lose that energy you might as well sell it to someone so sell it to a bitcoin miner um 
So that's where one place they're misinformed. But I would also be saying to them, look, you just have to look at this on balance. Look how much energy the traditional financial system uses. Look look at the ecological disaster, which is the gold industry. What we have here is the best form of the money that can help anyone in the world. You know, this is something that you really should be looking at on balance. So um, when I spoke to uh, Anthony Scaramucci, you know, the mm -hmm. point he made is how much does it cost to run a single Bank of America branch you know, over here on Carlsbad Avenue, uh, you know, for a year. And, and, you know, have you run that kind of analysis of like what a bank branch costs to run versus the equivalency in uh, asset transfer underneath Bitcoin? Like, are there any moral and energy equivalencies along those lines that make sense? There probably are, but, you know, I don't have them to hand. I couldn't give you a good answer. What I would be saying is that Bitcoin miners are buying up waste energy that would not be used. They are also incentivized to move towards cleaner power. But also, just look at it on balance. It's like, how much of the world's energy does Bitcoin mining use? It's 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 negligible compared to other industries. It really doesn't move. The, if you were to ban Bitcoin mining tomorrow, it's not going to change the, the big issues we're facing with global warming. Have you seen this show, Bering Straits Gold? You have no. to watch it. Okay. So basically it's a reality show and these guys go out on a barge of, I don't know where, you know, somewhere and, and they have these giant pipes that go down into the ocean floor. Right. And so they, they're sucking up tons of dirt and it comes down a conveyor belt and they're, you know, literally mining it for little tiny flakes of gold. And then all kinds of drama ensues. And, you know, the, they have to wear these diving, these deep sea diving cell bells and it's very dangerous and they're sucking up the floor uh you know and the, and the air stops circulating them and their arm, fingers get cut off and it's very dangerous uh and by the end of the season you know they've collect they've gone through hundreds of tons of the floor of the ocean bed using a barge and you know who knows how much energy and they've collected like you know three shitty vials of gold and then they go into town and they you know they sell it for three thousand eight hundred dollars and they've they spread the nine three you know twelve thousand whatever it is and uh you know they each make a couple thousand bucks uh and and so i think of that and it, it, you got to watch an episode of it it's amazing drama but i think of that and it uh and, and reminds you of how much effort and impact there is to mine gold and these other commodities that back well, currencies. Do you want to know the important point of this? This is the really crucial, important point of understanding Bitcoin, because Bitcoin and gold are very similar in some ways. They're scarce resources that people want to own, and they're scarce resources that people want to own to store their wealth in. But if you compare them to the dollars, right? Joe Biden wants to uh, he has a stimulus bill worth $3.5 trillion. Now, that $3.5 trillion is essentially going to be created at the click of a button. Money that is created that easily starts to lose its value. That's why you get inflation or hyperinflation situations. You look what happened in Lebanon over the last couple of years. I mean, the currency is debased by 90%. I think Turkey is like 60% over five years. We can look at hyperinflationary events in Zimbabwe and Venezuela. It's all happened because it's so easy to print money. You can't print gold and you can't print Bitcoin. They both require work. You know, in Bitcoin, we call it proof of work. They require the expenditure of energy you know, and the skills and resources of people to create something of value that's what gives it value you know it's hard to it's hard to mine bitcoin it is hard to mine gold so those things have a value because they're scarce and they're hard to get so this is why people want to own these rather than owning these paper bills that the government can print as they choose because what comes after the next three and a half trillion what comes after that more tax and more printing so i think that story you told is really important for another reason, because you're explaining the proof of work. The work went into mining that gold. It's a lot of effort. And they did it because they know it has value. What's the point in going out and working? If you're in, if you're in Lebanon, you go out and you work super hard knowing that your money is collapsing. Like it destroys the incentive to work. And this is what's great about Bitcoin. It is replacing the rent seekers within the political class with the productive class who want to go out and work hard and make money and store their value. So it's super important. Yeah. And uh, hey, can you hold on? I just got to pay for this uh, Starbucks. How much is it? Oh, four and a half billion Zimbabwe dollars. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Hold on. Like, hey, can you guys go in the warehouse there and get another crate of a Zimbabwean dollars? We got to pay for this coffee. 
Hey, dude, I've been to Venezuela, right? Yeah. I've been and I've seen what it's like. I've been to the markets where they now use the currency to make handbags and like little ornaments. Yeah. I've seen it. I've seen what happens to a country when this happens. You know, we need sound money because the political class makes everybody else pay for their mistakes. That's what they do because they have a. If you had an ability to print money in your house, you would. But you don't. So you know what money you need to pay your rent and pay your mortgage to pay your bills. And you work hard to do it. The political class do not have to do that because it's, it's like in the COVID situation. When we went into lockdowns and businesses closed, and this isn't an argument for or against lockdowns, but when we did go into lockdowns, these decisions were made by the political class. Everybody who worked in the civil service kept their jobs. Everyone who worked in government kept their jobs. Why? While restaurants and ice cream parlors and hairdressers and beauticians all closed down because they didn't have access to money or enough money to run their business. So I think the sooner we take away the creation and, and uh, distribution of money from the government, the better. Walk me through, for people listening, maybe two at most three buying strategies that make sense for a certain archetype of person. So the first person is um, family guy, father of two, um, you know, has a good job you know, say, I mean, who knows what a good job is. We, we live in San Diego. You know, every house is $5 million. Like who's living there? Where there's no poor people anywhere. Like every house is $5 million. It's sort of boggles imagination. But, um, so, so, you know, a, a family making 250, $280,000, two kids, they're spending a lot of it, you know, coastal California, uh, you know, just to live and, you know, pay a mortgage, have two cars, send the kids to school, everybody on iPhone and have internet and pay for everything you need, buy it, shop at Whole Foods. They've got, uh, so, so taxes on that 280, you know, they're going to pay 80. So maybe 200 remaining mortgage, cars, kids, school, a hundred. So maybe they got 80 in disposable income remaining from that. And then they sort of have to decide what to do with it. Um, of that $80,000 in disposable income that that family generates, what are you thinking would be a sound, you know, Bitcoin acquisition strategy? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, hmm, for that that one who had eighty thousand disposable, I would tell them to just go out and buy themselves one Bitcoin. Just, you know, firstly get off zero, but just go and get a whole Bitcoin. And the reason I would say that is they have the money to do that. We're talking there's twenty one million Bitcoin ever. That's so there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. And of those, we estimate a 4 million have already been lost. Okay. So we're talking 21 million Bitcoin, but what is it? Like 43 millionaires in the US? Do the math. There's not going to be enough to go around. And that's just the US. We're talk let's talk about worldwide. So go buy, go buy that one Bitcoin, put it away, and don't touch it for 10 years. Beautiful. And then what, then what I yeah. would say is, and the next one is the same strategy for everyone. Um, and it's the same. It's constantly the same. Every Bitcoin you hold you should not be thinking of selling within four years because that's like the longest it takes for a Bitcoin to mature, the longest. But what you should therefore be doing is just avoiding the price because the volatility will drive the fear and greed. We always talk about strategies called dollar cost averaging. You'll know it. Dollar cost averaging means pick an amount of money and pick a period of time and buy that Bitcoin at the same rate constantly. That could be that could be this pe these people with $5,000 a month, every single month at the end of the month buying $5,000 worth. But it could be somebody who's you know relatively lower income buying $50 a week or even $10 a week. But whatever the amount is, be consistent on the time, be consistent on the amount. Then you write out the volatility because you're averaging in. So if you're buying now at 40,000, it drops to 30,000, you're then buying at 30,000. When it goes back up to 40,000, you bought Bitcoin lower. And that's a strategy you should buy con continually. Now, I dollar cost, I'm going to dollar cost average and for the rest of my life. I so next. Buy. So next buying strategy, and I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, you know, I'm just picking an archetype, yeah, yeah. but, you know, say a guy running a podcast, you know, has tattoos on both arms, just, you know, just as an, just as a broad, um, generic example, you know, has a three, $4 million podcast, um, you know, a couple of kids, you know, British accent sitting on a couch, whatever, with some black and white striped pillows, but it could be anybody, uh, what would be a good Bitcoin acquisition strategy for that archetype hmm. well i am uh irresponsibly <laughs> long big i'm irresponsibly long bitcoin okay. like i say i hold eight weeks cash flow business and personal in pounds everything else is in bitcoin 
and that's the way I operate. Uh, and the, way, the reason I operate that for like that is because I believe the money system is broken. We we're remonetizing the world with Bitcoin, and everybody I know who has Bitcoin, they operate on a Bitcoin standard. The great thing about Bitcoin, it teaches you lessons as well. And uh, the main one we talk about is time preference. Uh, do you have a long or short time preference? Uh, if you have a short time preference, you're always thinking about the things you want now. The problem is with Bitcoin, every bit of Bitcoin you spend, you start to think about it. It's like, do I need that car? Do I want that house? Do I want that holiday? Because if I spend my Bitcoin now, that Bitcoin might be worth 10x in four years. So perhaps yeah. I shouldn't. Shouldn't. So I'm irresponsibly long, and it's made me really rethink the things I buy. And I, you know, I have a nice car, but I, you know, I, I live in a standard four-bedroom house, and I don't really spend a huge amount on, on on things these days. And because everything I think about could be something for the future. Oh, you don't not, really come over and run my house for a month. You'll <laughs> buy, buy big. You buy yeah. Bitcoin and see how you do. You, you you'll change. But the yeah, other no, thing I, is, I look. I've become I've been fortunate as well, so I tend to give a lot away. Um, I was just out in El Salvador and I gave fifty thousand dollars to two projects which are helping addicts on the street. Obviously, being previously an addict, it's um, you know something that which is quite close to me. And I visited two facilities which helps addicts get off the street and reintegrate back in society. And you know, I've been fortunate enough with what I do, so I gave them fifty thousand dollars. And you know, if I look, I'm not gonna. I don't know about what you think about your kids, but my kids won't get everything I made. They will get enough to buy a house and keep themselves going but they have to go out in the world and make their own money and i'll tend see, to see i hear away. that this is this is really an interesting argument i hear this all the time and i think the the guys that i hang out with that you know have kids and my kid's seven how do how, you have one kid that's 17 Two, how old did you... 17 and 11 17 and 11 so your 11 year old is not that far away from my seven year old uh i don't think that way like i want him to have I trust him enough and I want him to have every option that I can create for him to do good in the highest way that he can do it. And money is just a tool and a lever. So if he's got to spend 15 years getting up to the capital base that I can just provide him on day one, uh, I feel like I'm moving the time needle efficiently for him to do more good and better. No, I, I don't get me wrong. I'm I'm going to give my kids enough to raise them up to the capital base. You know, they'll be able to afford a home and pay their bills, et cetera. But I'm not going to overcapitalize my children when there's plenty of other people out there who also underwater and I could possibly help. So they're, they're, they're going to get a better start and opportunity than 99.9% of, .9 of people. I just know in that other 99.9% .9 of people, there's a bunch of other, like, Given twenty thousand dollars to this one facility in El Salvador, yeah. reintegrates maybe across that year fifty people back in with their families, addicts who are away from their children, their wives, their brothers and sisters. That helps them reintegrate them back to be with their families. And obviously, I want to look after my blood, but you know, I think I think by being a little bit more generous with a wider net, you can actually do the same for a lot more people. Yeah, it's a, and uh, that's a good trick too. It's an old Indian trick is. Uh... You know, if you're going to give away money, go to a very poor place to do it. It's no good going to Beverly Hills and setting up a drug treatment center. You need to have a lot, lot of money to do that. A lot of money to do that. Uh, and and so if I'm a third archetype, if I'm a business, right, and I'm doing, uh, you know, is there a business use case that's not, you know, just to the founders of the business in, in their personal income, you know, in your mind, what can the business or what should the business be doing with Bitcoin in your experience that the individuals aren't? Yeah. Well, I talked about the treasury. Uh, I think if you have a treasury, you should be considering part of that in Bitcoin just because yeah. of the basements that's happening. Now the other options are like e-commerce, but I mean, the thing is about e-commerce, I would be thinking, you know, some companies have added Bitcoin payments, but not many people use it. And it's quite expensive to, you know, or complicated to set up and, I would be saying, look, how many of your customers are coming to your website and going, nah, you don't accept Bitcoin. I'm not going to be buying. So I think it's a little bit of a red herring. I don't think people need to be thinking about that. But I, let me talk about broader where we're going and some of the interesting things that are happening. Yeah, because that's that's my last question for, for you. If there's not utility and it's mainly what we talked about is scarcity and desire, where actually is the intrinsic value in the coin? 
well, nothing has intrinsic value. Saying anything has intrinsic value is also a red herring. Like, you know, gold doesn't have intrinsic value. It has a market value for industrial use, but it doesn't have intrinsic value. Nothing does. So uh, we hear Peter Schiff talk about and Steve Hankey talk about intrinsic value. It's just it's just a red herring. But if you want to talk about utility, I mean, like we're in this complicated place where we have this new technology slash money that people are still figuring out. And a lot of people are against and a lot of people are scared of and don't know what to do about it and you know want to write it off. But it continues to grow and continues to expand because those people who have Bitcoin, you know, within four years, they've realized, holy shit, this is the best form of money. I should be holding my wealth in it. But let's talk about a really interesting side story. El Salvador, uh, President Bukele has made the quite bold decision to make Bitcoin legal tender in the country. So they're a dollarized country for your listeners. They um, they uh, dollarized uh, it was about 20, 20 years ago, I think it was, 20 or 30 years ago, which has been great for them in terms of having a stable currency, but kind of bad for them in, t- in, charge of not have, in terms of not having a sovereign currency which they control. Now, he took the brave decision of saying, okay, we're going to make Bitcoin legal tender, give people an option to use something else. And he put in place the Bitcoin law. Article 7 says all economic agents are mandated to accept Bitcoin. I was there on September the 9th when the Bitcoin law came in. And I went to Starbucks and I bought a cup of coffee with my Bitcoin. I went to McDonald's and I bought a double cheeseburger. I went to Walmart. Sadly, they're a few days away, so they're not in place. But the really interesting business use cases there is, firstly, me as a foreigner coming into uh, the country and uh, buying with Bitcoin, if I, uh, if I wanted to use my debit card to buy a cup of coffee, on top of the cup of coffee, I pay whatever the charge is, because that getting that three and a half you know, dollars from the UK to their bank account, there's lots of intermediaries. So, you know, I usually get charged an extra dollar or pound, whatever it is for that. So that makes the, the product 25% more expensive. But they also have to pay a car processing fee. So Starbucks now in uh, El Salvador, every time they accept Bitcoin, they can have it converted straight back to the dollar, but they're not paying that card processing fee. They're paying a, 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 a Lightning Network fee, which is pretty much a rounding error, error from zero, right? It's We're talking a penny, like a penny, maybe a couple of pennies. They're not paying the 3.5%. Now, you extrapolate that into hundreds of thousands of transactions in El Salvador. Suddenly, someone like Starbucks will look and go, well, hold on a second here. When we accept Bitcoin, we don't have to pay a fee. We don't have to pay a transaction fee. This is incredible. Three and a half percent across your business is a lot. So, so into, what I'd be saying to companies is like, you don't have to accept Bitcoin right now. You don't have to become a Bitcoin company, but you should certainly be learning it and certainly be aware of it because you know, eight years ago it was a toy for nerds. Four years ago it was a toy for investors. This year it's a toy. It's a treasury asset. And a uh, an illegal uh, tender in another country. Where are we going to be in four years? It might be legal tender in ten countries. It might well, be on the on the balance sheet of half the S and P. And how 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 much longer are you going to watch this and sit on the sidelines? I like talking to you, Peter. Is sort of like uh, we get in a plane and we're planning to go to New York uh, from California, but the plane isn't taking off. But another piece of runway just gets laid down, and we're just going to like drive the plane to New York. It doesn't matter if it takes off. Like you're so full of information. Every piece that you open up, you know, moves us deeper in another area. So for example, what is the next country in your view or the next countries are going to tip? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, Hmm. Switzerland, please say Switzerland. Switzerland, Switzerland. I mean, it feels like a very Swiss idea, right? Right. Uh, uh, Ukraine is uh, Ukraine. We're getting positive signals for Ukraine, Paraguay, Cuba, smaller other smaller countries and look some might not be making legal tender but they're making it legal to own bitcoin so that's where ukraine is right now and also you've got like estonia malta which is very uh, open to crypto companies and uh very positive towards that in terms of actual legal tender i don't know i think some are sitting there waiting and just waiting to see how this thing plays out for el salvador but then sometimes they're also missing you know some of the key points um but i i honestly don't know i one is an outlier Two is a movement. And as soon as we get the second one, I think we get the third, fourth, fifth pretty quickly. And I wouldn't be surprised if it just sweeps through South and Central America. So this is leads me into my next question. Yeah, uh, I don't disagree with that. Uh, I think, you know, I'd love to see something like big like Ukraine, you know, who could really it it it's a fit for their culture. It's a fit for their brand. Uh, it would make a big difference in their economy. So something like that to tip would just, you know, turn the whole system 
accelerate the whole system. But but it brings me around to your podcast. You know, what did Bitcoin do? So, I mean, how is this not like a 60 second news bite and an actual, you know, podcast? Isn't it just, hey, you know, Bitcoin's at 62, went down to 59. It's up to 63. Podcast over. What happens over at, I mean, yeah. I know because I've heard it, but tell people what happens over at what did Bitcoin do and why it's not, why, well, why it's longer than 60 seconds. What Bitcoin did. Uh, so sorry, sorry, what Bitcoin I, did. Yes. I only, I only do one show a week talking about uh, a yeah. month talking about price. I talk, talk to a trader and talk about the market. I don't really check the price. I couldn't even tell what the price is now because I haven't looked today. Like I say, my thesis is multi-year, so there's no point giving myself anxiety looking at the price or getting overly excited and spending it before I have it. So we talk about a lot of things. We talk about the technology, how it works. We talk about the uh, broader economy, the macroeconomic environment. Uh, we talk about governance and governance issues because I think what's been exposed over the last year certainly is uh, some of the more uh, authoritarian positions that governments are taking worldwide. We'd look at Australia right now. It's a very strange situation there. Uh, the US itself. We talk about uh, central banking, the ills of central banking. We talk about the monetary policy of Bitcoin, which is basically two rules. <laughs> imagine that. A imagine the US monetary policy was two rules. We talk about things like that. So basically, you know, it's a, it's a way of, we, we call it orange people. You made the, remember the red pill and the blue pill in the matrix? We talk about yeah, the orange sure. pill. Right. People come to my show, they get orange pill. They learn about Bitcoin. They learn why it's important. They learn about the technology. But we have wider, interesting discussions of asymmetric topics, such as governance and uh, wider economics. So, so then let's wrap up with downside protection. So I think... Yeah. For people who've listened and made it this far, uh, you know, have sort of been encouraged or inspired by you. And you have a very interesting personality. Uh, it's an exotic personality, but you're very even keeled. So you sort of have two sides of it matched up for, for some reason. You know, you definitely, um, the cars and some of the experiences in your life really signal, you know, sort of a triple A type of thrill-seeking, adventurous kind of personality. But on the other side, you seem very reasoned and uh able to be thoughtful about your decision making you don't usually see those two sides of personality you know mixed together but maybe you've just um tipped got old enough and you can't move fast enough to hurt yourself um you know financially or physically anymore uh or with relationships and you're just doing it right but it's fantastic to hear about your kids uh, for sure but let's let's offer some people because i do think we did build in a sense of optimism a sense of hopium uh, and a sense that this is something that's very reasonable and sane-minded to do and a bit of an advertorial for Bitcoin. But I want to sort of expose the other side of it and uh, that there is downside for sure. But what kind of, in your mind, other than the scale of the, the awareness, the scale of demand, what kind of downside protection do you see in the asset class? Are you asking me what are the risks? What are the what are the risks? And then to admit to what are what are the clear risks? You know, not the nuance, mm -hmm. because I think you know you probably can hit uh, a risk, you know, for an hour and there's there's you know, every currency has risks. So what are the key risks you should be aware of? And then on the other side of that, what's some of the downside protection to those risks? Yeah. So one of the biggest risks is how you invest in the asset. Um, and some people can invest and make some money quickly and then start throwing more money and then lose it and then, you know, get sucked into the fear and greed, you know, and not understand how markets move. That's always a risk. And I've seen people make and lose a lot of money. I've done it myself. Okay. The way to mitigate that is very simple set of words, which people always say, invest in, do not invest anything you can afford. You can't afford to lose. You know, just take that position. Uh, secondly, um, what you really should be doing is what I talked about earlier, which is dollar cost averaging. So just treat it like a, an investment. Don't try and come and be a trader. Don't go start trading with leverage, just dollar cost average. So that, that's the first one. The second one is you know, Bitcoin is unique in that it is you know, when you buy Bitcoin and you send it to yourself, to your wallet, you get you have final settlement. You that you hold that Bitcoin. It's not like PayPal where it's an IOU or your bank account, which is an IOU from the bank. You physically take control of that Bitcoin. If I send it to you, it's final settlement. The, and, and Bitcoin itself is also immutable. So when I send it to you, I can't get it back unless I ask you very nicely. 
So it requires you to take some responsibility around the security of your Bitcoin, protecting your Bitcoin, understanding what is known as the private keys and, and storing them sure. safely so no one can find them. So the risk, yeah, is that you lose your Bitcoin or you have it stolen. You know, the way it can get stolen is you get an email and you think it's from a trusted source or somebody says invest some Bitcoin here and you'll make more money back. The best rule here is treat everyone like the enemy. Yeah, fear everyone. And then just look after the security of Bitcoin. The the other wider, more yeah, existential risk to Bitcoin is regulation. But really, we're starting to see that's starting to fall away now. We're seeing lots of politicians in the US start to understand Bitcoin and be open to it. We're seeing countries be open to it. You now have the regulatory arbitrage. I mean, if you want to, you can just go and live in El Salvador as a Bitcoiner and uh, away from uh, governments who, uh, who, who fear Bitcoin. But really, look, honestly, m most of the fears are, are, are more or less you know, unfounded these days. It, it all just comes down to personal responsibility with regards to investment and security. Uh, I, I really think we're, we're at a silly point now where people are like still dismissing Bitcoin. It's like it's been here for 13 years. It's nearly a trillion dollar market cap. Um, it's been adopted by a country. It's on the balance sheet of Tesla. You know, if, you, if you're still ignoring Bitcoin, you're doing yourself a disservice. You're doing your family a disservice for not going out there and actually learning about it. And the best way to do it, go and buy some. Go and buy like $100 of Bitcoin. Send it to yourself. Send it to a wallet and see and see it happen because it really is quite magical. Yeah. Well, it's fantastic. All right. Uh, I'm going to let you get back to your family and your business. But I do think I see why people like the podcast for sure uh, because you as an individual, you know, provide I don't know, quite calm life lessons. But I think a the other side of the balance sheet from high living in finance which is values family focus poise grace getting to the end of the day satisfaction knowing that uh you know you're building something and leaving a legacy and things of value and and really like those seem to be the core drivers and then on top of that you know the bitcoin is the knowledge or intellectual property that you trade in uh and i think coming into this i felt like it was going to be the opposite like, you know, the, everything was going to be, uh, you, you know, Bitcoin and finance driven. And then uh, on top of that, there was a layer of values and family and um, the important things of life. So I see why people like the podcast because you put, to me, the most important things in the middle of it. So thank you for sharing that piece of your life. No worries. Thank you for having me. All right. Look forward to okay, hang out for a minute. Um, just to talk to you a little bit after the show. And Daniel's going to run uh, a little bit of a, uh, a little clip here. And then, Peter, I'll talk to you for a minute after the show. If you're planning to become a dealmaker at this level, make sure to join the Daily Dealmaker. We get into one little piece of this daily. And so you're just stacking and stacking and stacking these tools and tactics and strategies until they come out of you as naturally as they come out of me and the people that I work with. Add the tips, tools, strategies, tactics a little bit every day. And by the end of a year, You'd be a totally different, new, improved person and a very strong deal maker. Hey, thanks for listening. And be sure to stay tuned for more great content from Oren Claff. If you want to get daily insights and additional assets, go to orenclaff.com slash daily and sign up for a seven-day trial of The Daily Dealmaker. See you next time.